Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cult Spark podcast. We're going to be doing a mini cast focused on Pacific Rim tonight. Pacific Rim and nothing but Pacific Rim. Uh, with me, I have one of our regular Cult Spark podcasters, Stuart Smith. I should introduce myself first, I guess. My name is Bob Taylor. <laughs> I'm a writer editor here at Cult Spark, and I've got Stuart Smith, who's the entertainment editor at the Tyler Morning Telegraph, and one of our regular casters with me tonight. Uh, Stu, I know when we did our big summer movie cast earlier in the year in May, Pacific Rim was the one film you were really looking forward to. That was that was like your bullseye for the summer movie season as far as what you were anticipating. So with that in mind, you're the professional here. I'll let you go first. How do you think the film turned out? I loved it. I absolutely loved every single minute of the movie. Um, uh, I will say that I expected it to do a little bit, at least a little bit better uh, than it did. You, you did. We have, we have we we have it on the record of you saying how the Pacific Rim was going to blow up box office wise. Did I did I say that? Because oh, I did. actually don't, I actually don't remember what I oh, said. You did. Um, okay. All right. Well, yeah. So yeah. Well, in that case, yes. But, but I'm you actually. Know what? We'll talk a little bit about the box office, but let's right. save that till the end because that's really right. okay. you know the, the I, film got made. The film is here. We can enjoy the film, it. The film got what? made. The film exists as it is. That's all I care about because I loved I loved the hell out of this thing just a blast from start to finish um i said in my review that i wrote that this is i think this is guillermo del toro's star wars obviously it's not going to have anywhere even a fraction of the pop cultural impact that something like star wars had uh but i mean no movie really ever can i I don't know that that's ever really going to happen again well it's because movies as a whole can't have that right yeah exactly i mean we're, we're just at a at a completely different um we're at a completely right. different spot, you know, culturally and all that. But I mean, as far as, you know, Star Wars was Lucas's love letter to, you know, to Ray Guns and to Samurai and to Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon and all that stuff. And you can see it in, in every, you know, in every minute of that movie. It is him, uh, you know, paying tribute to the stuff that influenced him as a filmmaker, uh, you know, that blew his mind as a kid. And there's just there's passion in in every minute of that movie. And I see the same things, um, with Pacific Rim with Guillermo del Toro and, you know, giant monster movies and, uh, you know, every giant robot anime that ever came out. I mean, this is, this is him, uh, you know, just exercising all of that stuff that, uh, that, that inspired him and made him happy, uh, in his youth and, and just all of that. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a love letter to the things that he loves. I felt like there was a lot of passion in the creature design and in the effects and in the fight scenes, including that glorious one in Hong Kong. Yes. But the word I would use for some of the screenplay and character stuff would be ineptitude. Uh, if I have to quantify it in a binary form, I think the movie's good. I, I enjoyed watching it. That Hong Kong battle is tremendous. The last ha- the last hour of the movie really soars. But it, it's it's like Guillermo created this great world with a great look, and then he in- inhabited it with the blandest characters imaginable, and saddled them with the most generic sort of paint by numbers, just easy plot lines imaginable. And it, it just, for the first hour, it seemed like kind of a waste to me. I, I kind of, I, I kind of agree with that, but I also kind of disagree with that. I think that, I think that, um, that Charlie Hunnam, uh, you know, his character is by far the most bland out of the whole thing. A lot of that kind of goes toward, 
I mean, that's how those characters are. If you've ever watched Gundam Wing, if you've ever watched, you know, any Gundam anime, which I, you know, in, any I, of those, and I'll tell you, I don't like have that. much experience with. I've watched more it, kaiju stuff than the mecha right. anime type stuff. So you know, and that 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 character that he's playing, um, you know, the and the, yeah. that whole archetype. I mean, that is one hundred percent every anime hero ever. It, it doesn't really excuse it. Yeah, I, right. I was just saying, I, I agree. I mean, say it's, that maybe that doesn't work for a $200 million summer. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of the complaints that I've always had, you know, with, with the genre and with, you know, giant robot anime and all, all that kind of stuff. Um, so, I mean, I see where he was going and, and to his credit, he, at least he and Travis Beecham, uh, did their best to at least try and put a little bit more, in there than what you might find um, in the quote-unquote source material, if you will. You know, he's at least got the stuff with his brother. He's at least got, you know, you know something of, of trying to be this upstanding hero. But it's, again, um, it's so sort of like, uh, you know, the stuff with his brother seems so generic, as does the Maverick and Iceman relationship that's ported straight over from Top Gun into this film with the other pilot. You know, it's just so simple. I guess is the one, the word I want to use. It's just so and dull and straightforward and simple. And that's what really kind of surprised me about it is that you know I recognize that it has kind of that it has some of those weaknesses and that 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 those characters aren't as strong as they could be. But I almost like it just it didn't really affect me. Like it didn't. I wasn't sitting there thinking, oh, this is so bland. This is so boring. It's, you know, I mean, why are these characters so generic? But like they worked enough as they needed to for me because everything else, like everything else surrounding them, like I loved, I loved Charlie Day's character, which is something I never thought I would say because Charlie Day just annoys me to no end and everything else that he's done. You know, I love the, I love the other, you know, the other scientist, uh, uh, Gottlieb, I Gottlieb. can't remember the guy that plays yeah. him. See, uh, but you know, I, I loved those two. I mean, th- those, those are great colorful characters. I loved Idris Elba. You know, it it had it had it had some other stuff surrounding him in the peripheral, and that's really, I mean, that's that's the stuff that works for me the most. It's just it's everything surrounding uh, that core. Idris Elba was fine, but you know he's Stringer Bell, and for the rest of this podcast, I'm going to be calling him Stringer Bell because I can't help it. But (laughs) any any time I've been discussing the movie, I just you know I don't. I don't call him Stacker Pentecost. I love that name, by the way. Yeah. It's stupid. It's so stupid, but it doesn't matter. Like that's I mean, like... Stringer Bell's fine in it. Um, I actually, <laughs> I, I was fine with Charlie Day. I think he's more appealing when he's away from the Gottlieb guy, because it seems like uh, almost every. It's weird because your your primary characters in this movie are very sort of bland and straight laced, and then every supporting character just has quirks piled upon them either the way they look or the way they talk or the way they act all the supporting characters running around this movie especially charlie day and and gottlieb the other scientists they're just these fast talking strange talking quirkily dressed quirky characters and i thought charlie day was fine by himself but whenever it was his character and gottlieb in a scene together it was just overkill for me it was like fingernails on a chalkboard for me (laughs) it's just too much and i feel like like that's a, I think that's a poor substitution for compelling supporting characters. When you look at something like Star Wars, which has compelling supporting characters and just not, you know, he, quirks heaped upon everyone else that, you know, isn't a primary focus of the film. And see, to me, and again, uh, I don't know, maybe this is just because I have such a love for, you know, uh, it's obviously not as deep as what Del Toro has. But I mean, I, you know, I love 
I love a lot of the conventions that that you find in in you know the anime that's that's represented in the movie. Um, you know, I've always had a blast watching that stuff. So for me, I guess it, you know I I I'm so familiar with all of that stuff that to see it presented in this way that is arguably better than what it is in a lot of those shows and movies and stuff like that. Um, I don't know. I, it's. I, I, it's, I, it's it's hard for, it's hard for me to explain because it's like I understand the complaints that right. people I mean, have. Right. I mean it's just I mean and, and speech, I get it. It just I, the high I mean you can't always equate quality to box office grosses, but the highest grossing movie of the summer so far is Iron Man 3, which was also right. extremely well reviewed. And the people right. the reason people, you know, normal filmgoers and critics really responded to that movie is because you know Robert Tony Stark as portrayed by Robert Downey Jr is a hell of a character. I mean, I mean, oh, you, you know you're going to you know you're going to get those fight scenes in any Marvel movie, any superhero movie. Where they spend over a hundred million dollars. You're going to get fight scenes of the Iron Man three caliber, but the oh, sure. or, or you know FX work or action scenes, whatever you want to call them. But the reason that movie works is, is so as well as it does, and Iron Man three is still the best movie I've seen this summer, at least the best you know typical summer action movie I've seen this summer it's because you know Downey's so great as Stark and I think that was the best Iron Man film for Pepper Potts and I like oh, the kid in it and it's just like that's the reason you pretty much are going to get the top-notch special effects in 80 to 90 percent of these big budget summer sure. films it's really the the character work and the stuff that goes in between that pushes it over into a serviceable summer movie into a really good film and I just Pacific Rim just didn't have it for me but here's the thing that that kind of cripples something like Pacific Rim and where what what Iron Man 3 really kind of has as its to its benefit is the fact that I mean that was the fourth movie that Iron Man had been in. That's true. You know, it it has such a platform. I mean, it can soar because it's got it's got such a weighty platform already beneath it. Like Del Toro is working overtime here and trying to set everything up you know, introduce not only characters that are unfamiliar but really I mean just kind of like a, a a, a style that's unfamiliar to people. Most people aren't really familiar with, you know, with giant robots outside of transformers. And this is totally different than, you know, than what we get in a, in a transformers movies. Most people's right. uh, familiarity with giant monsters goes to the, you know, little blips of Godzilla that they've seen before, you know, or the awful movie from 1995 or whatever. Right. You know, and so it's it's got it's it, it is working kind of at, at a deficit, really, in trying to to get people to where they need to be. And, you know, that that really uh, that really kind of cripples it a little bit. I, I will definitely uh, I'll definitely kind of concede that is that it's, I, it's rushing so hard to to set everything up that, you know, certain things kind of suffer in the process. And and since you conceded that, I'll go ahead and say some nice things about the film since I, <laughs> I did marginally like it. And, you know, we, we talk about the, well, to the layman, they're monsters and robots to the, to those of us who are geek minded, they are Kaiju and Mecca. But, right. uh, I mean, that's what you're, you're, you're buying your ticket to see these things and they are really great. I thought the design work was pretty much impeccable, uh, especially on the robots, on the mecha. When, oh, absolutely. I mean, part of the reason, part. Of, I mean, it's. A, I guess it's a minor thing overall, but part of the reason that I've never watched past trans. There's a lot of reasons I've never watched past Transformers <laughs> one, but one of the smaller but no less significant ones is how the designs I, are. I hate the designs on those Transformers. When you see the robotics, the innards of the robots mm -hmm. on a Transformers movie, it looks like nothing that could possibly exist in reality. Oh, absolutely. It's like, it, well, and it's so, it's it's like so a Windows busy. screensaver of 
gears and levers right. going on for infinity that make that that they don't look like they take up any rational space. Whereas the mechas, especially when they're getting torn apart and you know delimbed and stuff, it looks fantastic. Well, it's just like the thing that the thing that's always annoyed me to no end with with the Transformers designs is that it's like it's so busy you can't tell what these things are Way barely even supposed to be they're so they're jagged and it just looks like a bunch of shards and gears and pistons right. put together and so like once they start tussling and like rolling about and punching each other you can barely tell who's who uh and that that to me is one of the biggest triumphs of this movie is that every single uh jaeger is so distinct like i m- my favorite one overall even though it's probably the most simple design of any of them was uh, the Russian, the right. Russian Jaeger. I that nuclear cooling tower for a head mm-hmm. is just. I mean, to me, that's just one of the most inspired designs I've ever seen in a giant robot. I I agree. There's there's you know f- what four main mech primary mecha in the movie, right. and they're all uh, quite varied in their design and their look. It's easy to tell them apart. The monsters or kaiju probably less so, but still fairly. A uh, a I little mean, bit less so, yeah. A little bit less so, but still pretty impressive. I was, and you know, one of one of the complaints I had read before I had seen it, but before I see a movie, I don't I don't read too many reviews or anything, but I'll pick up some stuff. And I had seen yeah. some complaints about, well, too many of the fights take place at night and in the rain. But I thought that the scenes were still choreographed really well. It was, you know, it was lit. And we're talking about CG here, but I mean, it was lit, it was lit appropriately. It was lit and directed appropriately where I could always tell what was going on, who was fighting whom, who was in trouble at any given moment. So, you know, even though a lot of it did take place, take place in the dark, that actually didn't bother me. I I thought it was fine. It would have, it would have detracted. It would have been bad for everything to be at night and in the rain. If this was, uh, you know, if it was a bunch of shaky cams, super close up, correct. You know, brown, gray, black backgrounds. But I mean, like, again, more that, like Transformers. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. The thing the thing that really stood out to me, because I've seen it twice now, you know, I the 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 level of detail in so many of these scenes is just kind of mind blowing. But like I love I love how just colorful and alive, like especially all the stuff in Hong Kong feels you know, you just you 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 drink in so much of this, and it just it's it's the, so everything pops. You know, the twenty minutes or whatever it is in Hong Kong is pretty much fantastic. And I even like like I said, uh, Charlie Day's character. I even the side stuff with with him in Hong Kong. I, that's his high point of the movie. I think that character's oh, high yeah, point I, I agree. is when like, you get I, Charlie Day away from the German guy and and uh, hooked and up with Hellboy. Up with yeah, hooked up with Ron Perlman and doing that that's when actually some of the character work starts to work for me. So that whole section of the movie is fantastic. Yeah. I thought, um, I have nitpicky plot stuff. I want to see if I missed something or if everybody you can answer does. it for me, or if we should okay. track down Guillermo and slap it. But since you're the, <laughs> since you're the, you're the, you're, you're going to be the Pacific Rim apologist here, Stu. I'm going to, I'm going to run the stuff by I, you. I've been defending is, it for like a week. This straight, is the, this is the shit I think about during the movie. Silly, <laughs> silly plot stuff, but okay. So, Blowing up the breach has never worked before. They say this. There's even a throwaway line like, well, we've tried it before and it, it, it's never worked. Right. So what's different now? And Stringer Bell hints that something's different. He hints that, oh, well, there's a there's a plan. Don't worry about it. It's going to work this time. But the fact of the matter is, is there's not a plan because the scientist guy 
don't learn that the mechas have to essentially ride a kaiju through the porthole mm-hmm. until later in the film. So so what gives Stu? Did Stringer Bell actually have a plan? Was he lying? Was, he, was it well, just no, a he, suicide he, mission because he was dying and he thought, oh, what the fuck, I'll give it one more well, go? No, it was, they had, like, I was... I kind of assumed that, like, they had tried, you know, blowing it up with missiles or rockets or, you know, or punching it, uh, something like that, because... Punching you know, they had, punching the breach. Right, who knows? I don't know. I don't know what they tried. They First really... we tried punching the portal. <laughs> then we tried kicking the portal. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they never really specified kind of how they tried attacking so it, but, I mean, they did. And so they had, man? they like, Striker Eureka, the Australian Jaeger, you know, it had that giant nuclear explosive strapped to its back right um and so they were gonna they were gonna try and nuke it because that was all the firepower they had the plan that the top secret plan that stringer bell didn't even really want to talk about too much was nuclear bomb right well they it was okay i'm not i'm just i'm just asking it was yeah 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 yeah, yeah. that was it's like you know this is everything we've got we're gonna just, you know, we're gonna try and hit it as hard as we can. After that little scene at the beginning of the movie, I kept expecting, you know, them go for them to go into some planning room at some point, and Stringer Bell was gonna unleash his grand plan. But then that never happened, and the scientists just said, "Oh, we have to do this." And I thought, okay, that's weird, but I'll allow it. Uh, the other thing is, this isn't so much as a plot hole as it is more screenwriting 101 stuff. But I, I really didn't like how, and maybe I missed something here again. So again, huh? correct me if I missed something. But it was weird how one of the big uh, story threads earlier on in the movie is how uh, – what's the girl's name? Like Mako. Mako. Mako wants to be uh, – what's it? Raleigh. Wants to be Raleigh's partner. Like Mako's uh-huh. born to be his partner. She's the one that can do it. They can help drive the mecha because it takes a team. And Stringer Bell's, no, can't be Maka. Can't be Maka. No, I you know, made promises. Can't be Maka. And then there's like – uh, you know, just from the structure of the script, I mean, obviously she's going to be his partner. It's pretty much printed right. on her head. So I expected like some big – I was expecting something like, you know, some major plot point was going to develop that she would be forced into being his partner. Or he was going to be saddled up with someone else and that person was going to die and she was going to have to step in. But instead, it's just like Stringer Bell goes to bed one night and wakes up and is like, ah, OK, I changed my mind. You can be his partner. It seems like there's nothing changing. It feels like 15 minutes of this movie goes by where Stringer Bell is insisting she can't be her, the partner and then a, a light switch is flipped and uh, OK. Well, see, the, the way that I interpreted that is, I mean, he was essentially his, her surrogate father. Correct. Um, you know, so I always kind of took his initial resistance as him just being a protective dad. Which is fine, but then what changed that? <sighs> right? Nobody. I don't know. No, there, there's nothing that explicitly says it, but, uh, you know, I... Okay, but if a primary motivator of that plot strand is well, that... No, hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> okay. You know, I, I just saw it as him, you know, when he takes that shoe, you know, the little red shoe back to her. Right. Uh, it's him essentially saying, I'm letting go. It's time for you to, to go and conquer this on your own. That That's how I interpreted but that. But then when he, when he comes to that decision, it happens off screen then. Because it's just, it was really weird for me how that was like a major story thing. And then just, he walks into the frame in one scene and his mind's changed and he gives her the shoe. I thought it was awkward. And, and I, I just made the, you know, the inference that, OK, he's he has changed his mind. He's changed his mind because, yeah I mean, he he has been holding on to that shoe since she was a little girl. I mean, you know, you see her running around with it in the flashback. Uh, and so, I mean, it's it's him 
letting go of her. I feel like, and, and I don't, I, I don't know like that. that better, I don't know that that necessarily needs, you know, like it absolutely a, needs to be there. I feel like in a better movie, you would get a scene involving a specific event or some sort of internal realization where Stringer Bell decides to let that go, where where he decides to. But that is him. That is him deciding to let it go. No, you just see the outcome where he shows up and says, "Okay, you can do this." No, the outcome is her becoming the pilot. The decision and, and is him no. giving. The decision is him giving okay, that you up. You see the decision, but you don't see the reason. You don't see him making it internally. I didn't feel like it's a nitpick. I'm gonna fully admit it's a nitpick, but I'm, honestly, I'm get like Del, Del Toro has said that there's about an hour of character stuff that on the. Oh, please forward. never let that come out. Please, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. There's like every movie is like four hours until they cut it down. I, I know, but I'm just saying I, I I can't take any more character stuff in any sort of extended Pacific Rim. And in fact, one of the reasons the movie ends up at least marginally working for me is that the, the character stuff is really brushed aside in the second half. I was actually shocked how much. I mean, you still get those, you know, those Star Trek. Sh- I like to call them Star Trek shots where they're in the cockpit bouncing around and the sparks <laughs> going behind them. You still get those shots. But the character stuff is really dialed down to an absolute minimum once you get past the Hong Kong scene, which I was thankful for. I'll tell you what, it almost makes me wonder if – I will say this. I applaud the fact that he – this wasn't made as an origin story. It wasn't made as an obvious first part of a trilogy. I mean this is a world that you jump right into. The movie has a definitive end, not that they couldn't have made sequels if it you know, made an absurd amount of money. Which oh, they'll, they'll find – it'll be, it'll be you know, Atlantic Rim or something. With the box office, I don't think sequels are happening to this. But yeah, no, yeah, your point, won't, your point is they. I mean, the, the film is such they that they could have. Find a way to do it. If but it was no, a hit, I, I, I agree. the story I mean, allowed for sequels if they could have made them. But it wasn't set up. The, the story is complete in in and of itself, and I appreciated that. That's how the film was constructed. I do wonder if it could have been a better movie if it sort of wasn't saddled down with all the generic action movie 101 stuff plotting. I wonder if it would have worked better if it was something a little less structured, especially in that first hour. Um, Something like almost a real time, you know, let's say we plop ourselves down in the middle of a mecha kaiju war that's been waging for eons. And, you know, the film, instead of stuffing in all these action movie tropes with the characters, you know, it's just sort of a real time look at this war, something that's a little less because there's a lot of plot jammed in this movie. I don't like a lot of it, but I mean, almost every character gets some sort of conflict resolution style setup and i almost wonder if something a little more fluid would have worked better for me i think that that might have like that something a little bit more fluid might have kind of dampened the immediacy of everything of what they were going for you know because so much of what makes this movie that propels it forward and, and, and makes it so intense is that i mean there is so very little time relatively uh you know between kaiju attacks in between you know everything that happens and so kind of having something that's a little bit more open and a little bit more kind of adventurous uh, it, it would have made it feel like a different movie i guess you know different different from it, what it Del Toro would have, wanted to do. It, okay i i'll concede both of those points but 
you still could have, I mean, you, there are a lot of different ways I think you could have made this movie on that budget and still worked the design, you know, still got the design work in and still got the, you know, the monsters and the robots in. And I just, I, I wonder if Guillermo is cut out for the big budget summer popular, you know, trying to make a movie for the masses. Cause I really don't think he is. I am not a Hellboy supporter. Um, I actually like that movie less than this one. You're insane. No, I, I just, and it's sort of the same sort of stuff. Like none of the character work in Hellboy really works for me that much. And the, the, the you know, this the, is why we can't have nice things. I know, but the movie try to make the, nice things. The, and you just, you are so ungrateful. Listen, for the movie, I mean, Pan's Labyrinth is a fantastic film. You know, obviously for him to get this movie made for the amount of money he made it, it had to be at least play somewhat like a conventional Hollywood film just with his passion stuffed into it. And his stuff works better for me when it's just his passions. You know, it's really interesting because like I even as much as I love this movie and I absolutely love this movie, I'll I will readily grant that it's not perfect. I mean, it's still you know, it's still definitely rough around the edges, but it's such it's such a work of, of passion that that to me is more exciting than a flawlessly constructed screenplay or anything like that. I'm, I'm glad that he wears his, you know, his influences on his sleeve here, you know, and, and, and I'm fine with it not being perfect. That That's OK. It's the it's imperfections I are mean, not it's it's imperfections are not strong enough that it detracted really uh, from what he was trying to accomplish. Listen, there's nothing wrong with getting some weird in your summer blockbusters or, you know, hoped for summer blockbusters. And, you know, the less generic and less cookie cutter they are, great. It's just, say, Christopher Nolan, who still puts a, you know, a sharp artistic stamp on his stuff, but also turns in films that, you know, you can see why they play really well with a large audience. And some of the components you need for that, like the strong character work, I just, Guillermo doesn't do for me, but I mean, I root for Guillermo. I, like I said, I like, I really like some of his earlier stuff. I love Pan's Labyrinth. So I, I root for him. And, and that's a good segue to talk about box office. Cause all the talk these last two weeks were about the box office because it was tracking really low for a movie of this cost. And then the Thursday grosses came out higher than they anticipated. So there was some hope, and then it kind of crashed over the weekend and it ended up making not very much. I mean, it's I don't know if it's seen as a Lone Ranger level disaster, but no, I don't think from, it's a, it's from a, a box lone... office standpoint, it's clearly seen as a large disappointment. Now, the main thing is who cares? I care in as much that, you know, having something like this be a success is a vindication for a filmmaker that I root for, that I enjoy, that I support, which that's fine. And, um, you know, it's like a success here means that he can kind of, you know, quote unquote, write his ticket other places. That I would don't, be one correct answer of why to pay. You no, know, that to me, that's the only reason, you know, to root for box office to, to, you know, to really hope that it quote, you know, that it beats other movies or whatever. Right. But I mean, otherwise treating box like, office, like sporting events is dumb. Uh, it I really mean, is. The movie got made. It's here. You can't take it away no matter how it does. Right, exactly. If you enjoyed it. Great. Um, I mean, here, yeah, here are the legitimate reasons to maybe look at box office. And, and you said one, if you want Guillermo del Toro to make more movies, to make what movies he wants, to get the budget he needs for certain size films, then yes, it makes sense to want this to, to make money so he can have those things. Two, 
if you want, you know, uh, you know, two would be if you wanted a sequel made or if you wanted an expansion of this universe, you would lo- you would you would want it to make money. Now, I don't know if that's applicable in this case, since, I, you know, the movie like we like we said, you could come up with a sequel if you had to. But this movie was sort of designed self-contained. And then reason number three would be if you wanted more movies of this kind made more, you know, like we, we've talked about, this movie dips into some eclectic tastes as far as anime and you know kaiju and that stuff but you know if you want a more eclectic summer blockbuster you know that shows it's that has a more eclectic influences i i guess you would root for it although a i'm never going to give the major hollywood studios credit for going more eclectic i mean they're always going to resist that but on the other side i like to think that that sort of more uh, diverse entertainments will push through and find a way anyway so that's the long way of saying the answer you gave Stu is the correct one. We root for <laughs> we root for Guillermo, and and I do, even though I'm not as sold on his bigger budget stuff. I do root for him. I like the guy, and I and I like some of his films. But well, but ultimately, the... but weren't you so annoyed to read about Pacific Rim's box office every day leading up to its release? I was. I, I was. I was. You know, it's like uh, it's frustrating. Uh, you know, it, it really kind of going back to my expectations for it. You know, it's just like to me, it's like, okay, this is something that I would I will will watch this movie a hundred times before I probably ever go back to watching any of the Transformers movies. Yeah, you know, it's like this movie. It's it's like let let me say loud and clear to anyone out there. This movie is a I've only ever seen the first Transformers. I will not watch another one. But this movie is a billion times better than the than the first. It has has better action. It's shot better. Yes. Uh, you know, even as thin as as some of these characters are, and I will concede that they are thin, they are still better than Shia LaBeouf and Megan Fox. All the robot designs are better. Uh, the whole world is more interesting. And so, like, my whole thinking was, okay, you have all of these elements, you know, that are so much better than what Transformers are. Surely people, you know, surely you didn't have $300 million worth of fanboys going to see transformers yeah you know, you know surely how, there, ha- you know there had there had to be like there had to be transformers is a prepackaged brand it, it is it's... it is but but again you know fanboy recognition that'll only take you so far you know and so obviously that those movies <sighs> had to connect to a a larger more mainstream audience than just the people who buy optimus prime mashup t-shirts um, Dude, I stopped trying to figure out what the American public. Well, and and so that's that's uh, why I was I guess predicting such you know such a larger response because it's like, okay, here's a thing done by uh, you know a truly uh, very talented uh, but director. N- nobody but film geeks knows who Guillermo del Toro is. Well, no, no, no. I'm not I'm not saying that del Toro was going to be a draw. I'm saying that you have a, a you know I mean right. people out in the out in the mainstream. I mean you know don't know who my, they know michael bay's movies right i don't know they necessarily know who michael bay is you know and so and, it's like oh the michael bay movie we're gonna go watch that you know nobody says that uh except film geeks you know i say it because i love michael bay um pain and, and gain didn't do that great either you've had a bad year at the box office too pain, uh, pain and gain did okay <laughs> did all right it did, it did it did it did fine it's for the box office kiss of death stew it's you it's fucking you <laughs> Uh, you know what? Everybody's got to have a calling. I don't know. <laughs> uh, anyway, you know, I, I was thinking, like, okay, you have so many sim- similar elements to something, you know, to these other three movies that did, you know, so much box office. I mean, surely this will be like at least 
a $200 million movie has to, you know, I mean, just, you know, that, that's gotta be it. It's like, surely this will connect on that primal level the way the Transformers movies did. And so it's just, it's baffling to me that, you know, that people would go watch those incomprehensible movies for hundreds of millions of dollars and then just kind of turn their nose up at this. Well, at the least it connected with you, Stu, and that's what's important. You know what? Uh, I, hey. I'm glad you enjoyed that. That's what it boils down to, really. I, oh, yeah. I, I'm hey. glad you enjoyed the film you were looking forward to the but most. It makes mostly, me happy. Mostly, I'm just sad that everybody else can't enjoy the movie the way that I did. <laughs> so We are going to call this a podcast. Stu, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. Um, we're going to be back. Uh, we're going to have a full podcast for everybody with uh, you know three or four of us real, real soon and look for more of these Cult Spark minis a little later on in the summer. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Take care.